I'll, I'll tell you what it is we're studying and where we're studying in just a second, but um, what are you going to do with your guilt? See, there's, there's this reality. You may not be aware of it, but if guilt is a real thing, then we're all doing stuff with it all the time. And it's, it's pretty easy to prove just, just by pointing out some illustrations. So one of the ways we deal with guilt is blame shifting, right? Why, why do we feel the need to say it was someone else's fault? Because there's something there that we need to get rid of. It's almost like hot potato, right? You want to get it out of your hands as quickly as possible. Um, an, another way that we often go about getting rid of our guilt is we try and tilt the scales, right? And so we know that there's this bad thing, and so we devote ourselves to a whole bunch of good things to try and outweigh it. But once again, you don't need to tip the scales if there's nothing there. Guilt is, is something that, that uh, we as moderns try and subjectify uh, to, to the state of a feeling. But what if it's something real? What are you going to do with it? And the reality is we've all known people who, because of clear, what the Bible would call sin issues in their life, that go undealt with. Not even ones that they're continuing in or practicing in, but ones that are part of their background, ones that they see as definitive, that pretty soon they become completely blind to who they are as a real person, right? And pretty soon the way that they present themselves is so far removed from reality because they can't distance themselves from their guilt and so they're having an out-of-body experience, right? Where they no longer identify with that person. Or that's another way that we deal with our guilt that, that you've probably witnessed or you might find in yourself. You put up a facade. You hide it. It's amazing to me that when the Bible opens in its chapters, as soon as there is sin and there is guilt, all of these things happen. Blame, uh, you know, it's the woman that you gave me, Lord. The serpent, he told me and I ate, right? Uh, hiding, shame, all of these realities, all these things we see in our life that the Bible says are the byproducts of sin and the byproducts of guilt are constantly present in our lives. And there's a danger. There's a danger in our lives of being tempted to remove things just because we're told to. When even science recognizes the reality of dark matter, right? We've never seen it. We just know that when we measure up the sum total of the universe and put it on an equation, there's a lot of missing matter, right? All I'm saying to you tonight before we get sto uh, started, no matter how you feel about these major biblical concepts of sin and guilt, is when you do the math, Where's the guilt? What are you doing with it? Okay. Now here's where we're at. We've been moving through the five Levitical sacrifices in the opening books of the Old Testament, or the opening chapters of the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Uh, they are foreign. They are brutal. Uh, they are obviously not in practice anymore. Uh, they are meticulous, uh, repetitive, and even as we read the passage, you'll see tonight, boring. In fact, the sacrifice that we're looking at tonight covers so much ground, I'm not even going to read the whole passage. I'm going to summarize. You can read the rest of it later. Um, but ultimately, as we've been seeing, these sacrifices serve a couple of points. One is you have to remember that these are not ways that men came up with to impress God. The opening of Leviticus says, And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, and he lays out the sacrificial system. Okay, and so this is divinely instituted for a purpose. And it's clearly not because God needs sacrifice. It's because we do. It's because we do. And so what we find in this practice, that you have to remember that an ancient uh, Israelite would have gone through 
daily, monthly, you know, hundreds of times over the course of their life going through these patterns. They were instructive. They were object lessons. For 1,500 years, Israel went through this practice and these acts spoke. And here's the things they spoke about. They said, who is man? What's wrong with man? Who is God? What is God doing to fix what's wrong with man? What does it look like to set things right? That's what these sacrifices are about. In fact, the New Testament tells us that all of that was uh, like a prophetic happening. Every time those motions were gone through, every animal that's throat was slit, every time they gathered in the tabernacle, that all of these things were prophetically saying, here's what I'm going to do. And that's what God has done in Jesus Christ. And so it may seem ancient, and it may seem foreign, and I know that if you've ever tried to read the Bible, the second place you derail, right after the genealogies in the book of Genesis, the second place you derail is the book of Leviticus. But, but, the issues underlying this are the big issues. Not just the big issues of the Bible, but the big issues of God, the universe, and everything. The issues. And so, as we look tonight, we'll be looking at what's traditionally been called the sin offering. Some people argue that it'd be better called a purification offering, and we'll see why. Um, but here's what's unique about it before we look at it. The last three sacrifices we looked at in Leviticus, they're lumped together, and they're all free will sacrifices. Each one of them is just given because the offerer wants to. And they all speak volumes. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, we've seen that. Secondly, they all are said to be a pleasing aroma before the Lord. Okay, And so it's, it's worship in its truest sense. Brought freely just because you want to worship God. But the two sacrifices we'll look at tonight and next Sunday, these sacrifices uh, have to do with necessary sacrifices. When this happens, you must do this. And specifically, they deal with not pursuing a relationship with God, but when that relationship is broken, right? When things have been derailed. This is how you get back on track, okay? So with that being said, if you have a Bible tonight, you're going to want to open it to Leviticus chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's one tucked in the back of a pew nearby that you are more than welcome to use, and you can use the index to find the Old Testament book of Leviticus. It's the third book, and then turn to chapter 4. sacrifice that we're looking at, the sin offering, takes up all of chapter 4 as well as the first 13 verses of chapter 5. Um, we read the whole thing through this morning, uh, and I don't necessarily regret that, but I don't feel that it's necessary. And so I'm going to explain what happens in chapter 4. We're going to read a portion of it, and then we're going to jump directly into chapter 5. Um, chapter 4 presents the sin offering for different categories of people. First, the high priest, then if the nation as a whole has sinned, then the leaders of the nation, and then the commoner, okay? And what we'll see as we read this is that the sacrifices are, for the most part, the same. What changes is what the offering is, the highest being a bull for the nation or for the high priest, and the lowest being a female goat or a female lamb for the common Israelite. Um, and then what's done with the blood, okay? Once again, the 
the high priest in the nation of Israel, the blood is taken all the way into the holy place of the sanctuary, sprinkled towards the veil and put on the altar of incense, whereas the commoners is just dumped out at the, uh, in the courtyard at the um, altar of burnt offering, um, where the sacrifices usually take place. Um, other than that, it's the same thing, and we'll talk about why that is, but for that reason, we're just going to look at the high priest just so we can familiarize ourselves with the sacrifice. Then we'll jump forward to chapter 5. So beginning here in chapter 4, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sins that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish, to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. The priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that's in the tent of meeting, and all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of a burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove it, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that's on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them and the loins and the long lobe of the liver, he shall remove those with the kidneys just as these are taken from the ox of sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering, but the skin, the legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On an ash heap it shall be burned up. Next it says, if the congregation, then if a leader of the congregation in verse 22, and then in 27, if any of the common people. Okay. Now in chapter 5, I want to pick up again in verse 1. Here now it gives us uh, reasons for bringing the offering. Okay, it's given us this big category, if anyone sins unintentionally, and here it gives us examples, and they're not exhaustive, and we'll see what they tell us later, but let's read them together in chapter 5, verse 1. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Or, if anyone touches any unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal, or a carcass of unclean livestock, or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him, and he has become unclean, and he realizes his guilt, or if he touches human uncleanness, whatever the sort of uncleanness may be with which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt, or, if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good in any sort of rash oath, oath that people swear, and it's hidden from him, when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin." But, it continues here in verse 7, if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. Now jump down again to verse 11. But, 
if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it and shall put no frankincense on it, for it's a sin offering. And he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take a handful of it as a memorial portion and burn it on the altar on the Lord's food offerings. It is a sin offering. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed in any one of these things, and he shall be forgiven, and the remainder shall be for the priests, as in the grain offering. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we make the mistake of reading something that's so foreign we render it irrelevant, when it's actually its foreignness that helps us to see what we could not that helps us to get beyond our own assumptions and our own culture, to see things from a different angle that makes clear what was unseen. I pray that that be the case by your spirit tonight, that as we look at this afresh, we would recognize these realities that this sacrifice points to, and that we would see the good news of the doctrine of sin. We pray this in your name. Amen. Obviously. If the requirements are laid out so meticulously, if the categories are drawn so broadly, if it's repeated in each and every scenario so you get the rhythm, and if it repeats over and over again, and this is the one thing that we missed by not reading it through, at the end of every offering, whether it's the high priest or the nation or the elders, uh, whether it's the three types of sin that it lists or the poor offering or the even more poor offering, everyone ends with this, and the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. If it takes the time to lay down every detail, if it lays out this whole portion, if it uses these long and winding sentences, did you notice? You might not have, but verse 1 actually doesn't have an ending. Go back and look. This, this is how important this whole thing is. It's like one breath. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about the things not to be done and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest... Okay, the entire passage follows that open-ending sentence, right? It takes the time to nail down all these details. The obvious reason is because this is something that's needed. It's something that's necessary. It's something important, okay? I would argue that if God is all-powerful and all-knowing, that he probably doesn't waste words. And he spends so much time trying to nail this down. And he develops this pattern that the New Testament makes clear, in one sense, doesn't actually do what it appears to do. That the blood of bulls and goats can by no means really deal with sin. But instead is actually just preparatory. He's just teaching these broader lessons in preparation for the one, pointing to the actual sacrifice, the one that will do these things. And if you're reading Leviticus for the first time, if you've never been exposed to a sacrifice, you have to recognize here that it is a bloody ordeal, right? Once again, put yourself in the shoes of the offerer, and what you have here is not you handing off, you know, a sheep like you're dropping it off at summer camp for the priest to take care of so your sins are dealt with but you actually slaughtering the animal, right? And we find that the temple, this word that we usually use for, for incredibly beautiful, transcendent, somber, atmospheric buildings, here with the tabernacle and later with the temple of Israel, it's only half the story. Yes, incredible craftsmanship, totally beautiful, filled with symbolic pieces 
to be thought on and not just walked by every day, but filled with the smoke of the burning flesh of animals and coated with blood. These sacrifices are running, you know, the priests are working all day long, an entire day shift of just slaying animals, and during the festivals, they're calling in extra people and working overtime. You know, at, at the end of the day, this altar where they're working is in a pool of blood. And the holy place, right, this place that literally has holy in the name set apart over the years, splatters of blood. And don't get the idea that they've got a night janitor who's coming in and cleaning up, right? This is, this is what happens in this place. This is what it's built for. The altar of incense is there rubbing the blood on the altar. After a while, you no longer see the gold the altar is made out of. You just see the blood. But what if it's intentional? The Bible goes so far to say that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So if there's such a thing as forgiveness and it's real in full sense, if guilt is going to be dealt with, blood is the only option. But as I mentioned in my prayer, as much as that sounds like bad news, as much as we wouldn't like to, you know, make this a primary topic of conversation, as much as you may even be uncomfortable with the concept of sin or even the concept of guilt, in our culture, this is tremendously good news. Now, if you're a Christian and you think I'm already getting the gospel, I'm not. Okay, I know there is the good news, but this is good news. And I'll tell you why. Are you familiar with Dorothy Sayers? Okay, Dorothy Sayers single-handedly created the mystery novel. Her uh, Lord Peter Wimby novels are the beginning of mystery novels, okay? Uh, she wrote extensively and was a great Christian thinker. And this is what she says. I wanted to share this before we really get rolling here tonight. This is why this is good news. One of the really surprising things about the present bewilderment of humanity is that the Christian church now finds herself called upon to proclaim the old and hated doctrine of sin as a gospel of cheer and encouragement. The final tendency of modern philosophies, hailed in their day as a release from the burden of sinfulness, has been blind, uh, or has been to bind man hard and fast in the chains of iron determinism. The influence of heredity and environment, of glandular makeup, and the control exercised by the unconscious, of economic necessity and the mechanics of biological development have all been invoked to assure man that he is not responsible for his misfortunes and therefore is not held guilty. Evil has been represented as something imposed upon him from without, not made from within. The dreadful conclusion follows inevitably that as he is not responsible for evil, he cannot alter it. Even though evolution and progress may offer some hope of alleviation in the future, there's no hope for you and me here and now. Here's what she's saying in summary. Because our culture has become obsessed with saying that you are just the byproduct of your environment and of your genetics and of your hormones and of your economic status and of all of these aspects, it may have been trying to remove the blame, but what it's done is left the guilt standing and as she points out here, the final consequence of that is there's nothing you can do to change. You cannot be free from your guilt. You cannot change if determinism is real. 
if these are the factors, if it's not your responsibility, there's nothing that can be done. And so she declares and almost calls the church in this age to recognize the good news of the hated doctrine of sin, in her words. Because what we see here is true forgiveness. And what we see here is true cleansing. What we see here is guilt dealt with in a way where guilt is removed. Now, as I mentioned, the practice of the offering itself, as meticulous as it is, is pointing to something. Um, But before we look at the offering itself, there are two consequences of this. One we've already mentioned is forgiveness, and the other one is cleansing. And that word is not actually used in the passage. It doesn't say, and he shall be forgiven and cleansed. But this same sacrifice is the one that would be offered by an Israelite if they were in a ritual state of uncleanness and needed to move back to clean. In fact, the word atonement itself that's used over and over in this passage always points to those two realities of forgiveness and cleansing. They go hand in hand. Here's why that matters. If you read through the rest of Leviticus, things get weird, right? It's you can eat these animals and not these animals. You can wear this type of clothes or this type of clothes, but not at the same time. It says that if you expose yourself to these types of things, like a dead body, you are now unclean. Or if you're a woman and you're menstruating, you are now unclean. Or if you've just had a baby, you are now unclean. Or, and the list goes on and on. There's all of these things. And this is one of the ways that you transition from the ritual state of uncleanness to the ritual state of cleanness. Now, this is so foreign to us, but I want you to recognize even tonight that it's not foreign to the whole world. This is not an ancient and outdated thing. This is a Western Eastern thing, okay? If I was preaching the same sermon in India and I mentioned ritual states of uncleanness, those categories still exist in places, right? They have an understanding of these things. And here's where we bring in an idea that's a misunderstanding that's really important for us to clarify tonight. We hear the word unclean, and we hear the word clean, and we hear the word holy, and we want to put them on a spectrum, and we say, therefore, these people, the holy ones are righteous, and the unclean ones are unrighteous. And that's not just an oversimplification, it's a complete misunderstanding. I was listening to Jay Sklar, isn't that a great last name, who's a scholar on Leviticus. He's devoted his entire life to this book, and he says when he tells people that, he still gets laughs. But he was explaining that, uh, he was using an illustration to help us get this that I found helpful. He said, there's not really very many ritual states in American culture, but marriage will stand in as a ritual state, okay? You are not more righteous for being married. I know we don't always get that from the church, but we should. There's nothing Uh, more outstanding or obedient or righteous about being married, and there's nothing less so about being single. But if you go through the ritual of a wedding, it does, however, put moral obligations on you, right? And so it's not a moral state, but it does come with moral obligations. Like, for example, you probably shouldn't date other people, right? And those moral obligations don't just act as obligations, but they also say something about the state that you're in, okay? So, for example, it says, I'm committed to this person. Every time you choose not to date another person, you're, you're sending that message. You're saying those things. You're enforcing that relationship, if you will. Uncleanness and cleanness in Old Testament history was not just temporary, and that's really important. 
don't let it, people tell you that because Leviticus has these laws, Christians just cherry pick which ones we have to keep. And so they say, these ones we have to keep, these ones we ignore because we like lobster. That's not how it works, okay? Leviticus is like the don't walk on the sign that now says walk. It's a temporary thing for the nation of Israel to the coming of Christ. And Jesus deals with this, and the New Testament deals with this, and it also unpacks the meaning for us. But even the Jews understood that all of these external things, which got them asking what types of questions? What is holy? What is unholy? What is pure? What is unpure? How, how does this work? How do we tr transition from one? It's like contamination, right? That's a pretty appropriate metaphor. And then washing, also an appropriate metaphor. It gets them thinking about all these things, and what you discover is all of these externalities are really about an internal truth, okay? Which impurity is, is still a good metaphor for. The reality of all of the Old Testament laws of purity have to do with the fact that aside from your guilt and whatever caused it, there's something deeper. It's not just an action. It's not just a decision you made in life. And once again, this may seem foreign to you, but we've all experienced this. Have you ever been shocked by your own behavior? Or in apologizing to someone said, I don't know where that came from. What's come over me? Have you ever tried to change a behavior in your life and you thought it would be totally easy to do so and then you discover that this is who you are? Have you ever made an inner vow that you'd never be like your parents and then you find those exact same words or those exact same behaviors spilling out in your own life? Jesus says, listen, it's not what a man eats that makes him unclean, but it's the defiled heart. It's out of the heart that uncleanness of all sorts spills. And I want you to recognize tonight that that's not Jesus changing the script. That's not him introducing and using an old metaphor in a new way. That is what it was built for. And here's how I know it. Because David, the psalmist, David, the king of Israel, David, who was a Jew, prays in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God. He got it. He understood what was involved. And you know what's really interesting about that verse? There's two Hebrew words for create that could both be translated create. There's asa and there's bara, okay? If you create a chair, you asa it. If you create a good meal, you asa it. Bara is only ever used of God. And the implication of this word is it's a creation that only God can do, like creating the universe in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. That's the word that David picks up on. So what he's recognizing is that this impurity issue is not something that he can overcome on his own. Okay. Now, when you understand that reality, suddenly a lot of things make sense. Like it spends chapters talking about what to do if you're having issues with your house and mold. Okay. Now, the cleanliness laws or the purity laws are not about hygiene. But hygiene does teach us something, right? You can be having health problems just because of something you can't see behind the walls, right? And if that continues to grow, it doesn't matter how many times you bleach the wall, you're still slowly poisoning yourself. You can have a rash on your arm, and maybe it's just a rash, but it could be something a lot worse, right? And so you have to look deeper, and you have to wait and see what happens, and you have to observe the pattern in your life. All of these things are pointing to the reality um, that, that, um, that I heard once put this way. If you steal a horse... It doesn't make you a horse thief, it just proves you are one, right? There's something before the action. There's something even before the desire 
That's what purity is about. And so what David is recognizing, and by the way, Psalm 51, he writes after he has an affair with another man's wife and then secretly plots that guy's death to hide the fact that he got her pregnant. And he says, this is whole, a whole lot more than a bad decision or bad behavior. And I can't just fix this by saying, never going to do that again. All right, he says, I need you to fix this. It goes deeper than this. There's something in me that is wrong, that is bent, that is broken. Create in me a clean heart. Okay? And so ultimately, this sacrifice then, uh, it points to the need for these two things. Not just forgiveness, but also cleansing. So what do we learn as we look at it? Some of the things we learn we've already seen in the other sacrifices, right? An animal is brought, and it says that the offerer lays his hand on the animal, and if it's for the whole congregation, then the elders, the leaders of the community, all gather around and lay their hand on the animal, and then they kill it, okay? The implication, what's going on here, is you bring an animal without spot or blemish, which, because it's an animal, is completely innocent, and when you lay your hand on it, you recognize it as a substitution, right? Kind of like tag team wrestling. And the substitution, unfortunately, means death for the animal. And because of that, it means not death for you. Okay. Like I said earlier, the scriptures declares that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. The recognition that the sacrifice makes right off the bat is that the wages of sin is death. And we see a lot of gradation in these offerings, right? A lot more demanded for leaders in high positions than for the common man. And even though there is one for the poorest of the poor exception, which is a bloodless sacrifice, it's just a pile of flour. That doesn't break the metaphor here. It just shows how much God really wants to forgive, right? He doesn't want to put any economic barrier in your guilt being dealt with. But the picture, the standard, the metaphor is death. And if not your death, and somebody else's death in your place. So not only do we see that, um, but we see on top of that uh, the manipulation of the blood, right? And we see some distinctions in it depending on the level of society that the offerer comes from. And so for the common person, the blood is just like usual poured out at the base of the altar. But for the high priest, or for the congregation, it's taken into the holy place, this internal place where only priests can go, and it's sprinkled there. Okay. Blood is seen in the Old Testament like detergent. It has to do with this aspect of cleansing. It's amazing to me that uh, in Isaiah, God is speaking to his people, and he says, though your sins be like scarlet, they will be white as snow. And when you look at how that works out, how this laundry is going to go down, it's blood that washes it. And I, I'll just tell you practically, blood does not make a very good detergent in real life, right? In fact, it's a really stubborn stain. But the Bible constantly points to this. It begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when the very first guilt is being dealt with, God kills an animal to clothe Adam and Eve. It runs through Cain and Abel. It runs through the sacrifices of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's spoken about in Passover, right? What's the difference? The last night of Passover, when God judges Egypt and they, he does this final plague, what's the difference between an Israelite household and an Egyptian one? Only we're told that they've killed an animal and put the blood on the doorpost so the angel of death passes over. 
blood flows through the Old Testament and it doesn't stop flowing. Even if you listen to the songs of the church, you'll hear blood mentioned all the time, right? But what is it about blood? We, we learned last week that Leviticus tells us that the life is in the blood, that blood stands in as a picture of being life. And so we get back to that same idea of substitution. That's why it's not just an offering of blood, you know, a bag of blood, or, you know, we don't send the sacrifice home with a Band-Aid, right? It's, it's death. It's fully poured out. It's fully shed. And so what it's really pointing to, once again, is whether it's forgiveness or purgation, cleaning, uh, that death is necessary. Now, I think this is a place where we need to deepen the reality of sin, because it doesn't matter who the offerer is or what the sin is, right? It doesn't matter if we're in chapter 4 and it's like, man, you're the high priest, you should know better, or you're just a normal person. And in the, the list of possibilities, it doesn't matter if this is something you should have done and didn't do. We have a tendency to say, sure, there's sins deserving of death, right? We, even if we're not caught uh, comfortable with capital punishment, it's not because we don't believe it's an ap appropriate consequence for certain types of sins. But we make this gradation, don't we? And so there's mass murder over here, and there's telling a lie over here, right? And everything in between. But the reality is, whatever the sin, whoever has done it, death is required. The primary reason that this is the case is because sin is serious. What's the warning that God gives Adam and Eve in the opening chapters of the Bible? Eat of any tree you like, but if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And if you read the first five chapters of Genesis very quickly, you will discover that death becomes the primary problem. In fact, Paul calls death in the New Testament the last enemy. Okay? It's the problem. And so you get to Genesis chapter 5, and what's a genealogy telling you about a bunch of people born reads like a eulogy. So-and-so had these kids, and he died. And so-and-so had these kids, and he died. And he died. And he died. And the pattern continues. Paul puts it this way. He says, the wages of sin is death. And take that metaphor and use it tonight. Wages. Let me put it in modern terms. The paycheck of sin is death. Okay? It's your do. It's what you're owed. It's the consequence, right? And to point out something obvious, death is a constant in human life. It's not something escapable. It's hardly, for human life, even something that's delayable. As much as every year a magazine comes out and predicts in 20 years we will live, you know, hundreds of years more, it's just something we talk about. It's still hypothetical, but the reality of death is present. And the Bible says the reason is because of sin. Now, that being said, at the same time here, we see that God recognizes a gradation in responsibility and consequence. Right? And so the high priest has to bring a more expensive offering. And the high priest has to bring the blood right into the holy place. And it tells us later in Leviticus that the reason is because that place has been defiled. And so the issue of cleanliness is, is not just that you're a defiled person. It's you're a defiled person in the presence of the tabernacle and you're defiling the place you're walking in. OK? 
okay? Uh, maybe it'd be helpful for you to think of the, the Charlie Brown character, Pigpen, right? You're not even aware of the fact that everywhere you go is, is now becoming a dirty place. And here the high priest or the nation as a whole where God's presence dwells, they're defiling that place. That's the reality that's being pointed to. But this tremendous gradation here from high priest and the whole congregation of the commoner is a wonderful relief because yes, the consequence and the due of sin is death, but that doesn't mean that God grades on a curve, right? He recognizes here responsibility means that if you're in a position of power, your sins can greatly and tremendously do more damage than the average Joe. I'm just going to show one way that this is the case. In fact, even the idea of defiling the tabernacle brings this to mind. Have you seen the film Spotlight? It's a movie that I wish with all my heart never had to be made. And I spent the last half an hour of it, you know, trying to get, keep myself together so I could see and hear what was happening. But it's about uh, a newspaper in Boston. It's a real story that just after 9-11 broke this scandal of cover-up in the Catholic Church in Boston that 70 priests had molested children and just been moved to another place and had settled out of court, and it was all kept quiet. It had become a systematic way of dealing with molestation. And the hardest part of the film is that the film ends when they publish the paper, and so the credits tells you what happens next, and it says by the time they were done in Boston, it was 200 priests. And then it says, now here's all of the other cities that have found similar scandals. And it starts to put up page after page of size 10 font, you know, hundreds of cities all over the world. And it's overwhelming. You cannot tell me that when the church, when a person who represents God, when somebody who stands in a place of authority behaves like that, when we see things like that, that people don't walk away and go, this is evidence that God isn't real. Even David, who I mentioned in Psalm 51, one of the scariest sentences in all of the scriptures is when Nathan the prophet comes to him and he says, because of you, the Gentiles, the other nations, the non-Jews will blaspheme. They'll say, see, I knew the God of Israel wasn't real. He's just like us. He's just like the worst of us. And the reality is, it's not just priests. How many people have justified their sins because of the sins of a greater official? Even I was only following orders points to this reality, doesn't it? And so we can just condemn Goebbels when you've got an entire system of eradicating human life. There is this tendency for us to think of sin as personal choices that are completely private and have none of, none of your, are none of your business. That's not how the Bible sees it at all. Sin doesn't just offend God, it destroys life. And you can't damage control the way you think you can. And we are terrible at managing how much our sin hurts other people because we shouldn't be we shouldn't be the one who's the judge of that, right? We should recuse ourselves from the case because what do we want? We want the lowest sentence possible. That's the problem with systemic injustice like you saw there in the Catholic Church in Spotlight. I don't think their original idea was, oh man, this is gonna be huge. This is the best way we can deal with this. No, it was case after case. 
but every time it got a bit more shameful and it got a bit more dangerous and there was more at stake and it just steamrolled, that is the reality of sin in our lives. It is impossible to contain its consequences. I'll give you another illustration of what it looks like to defile. Okay, the recognition here is that the high priest's behavior or the leader's behavior have put the entire nation at risk. Now, once again, I know that's not a very American idea. We live in a time where we love to say, that's not my president. But I tell you what, if the president declares war, we are going to war. And you can't escape the consequences of that war just because you want to remove yourself from the choice. Okay? It's all or nothing. There's a togetherness reality in this. But here's another way that this plays out. Sin defiles. Dirt makes dirty. And I don't think this is hard to prove. When I was a child, somewhere between seven and ten, that's the first time I was ever exposed to pornography. And it wasn't because I went looking for it. Okay, it was because my childhood friend's father would watch the Playboy channel late at night while we were camping outside. It was because we came across one of those green electrical boxes and found inside of it super old and extremely hard, hardcore pornography magazines stacked high. We didn't put them there. We didn't order those in, right? The consequences of that, which I still reap today, are because of somebody's private habit, right? That was happening after dark and everybody went to bed. That was locked away in a private place so his kids weren't exposed to it. You see, we are so quick, not just to relegate guilt to being irrelevant, but relevating sin to being undamaging, and it's just not true. And the sacrifices here recognizes that. It recognizes that leaders can bring consequences on an entire country. When we look at the sacrifice itself, other than what we've already mentioned, the price of the sacrifice and what's done with the blood, other than that, it's pretty consistent. In each case, we see that the animal is brought, that the hand is laid on it, but there is something unique about this sacrifice. Did you notice? It's confession. Here in chapter 5, it says that when you lay your hand on the animal, you confess the sin. You see, all the sacrifices that we've looked at recognize the reality of a sinful person in the presence of a holy God. And so death is a component of that. But this is about sins, plural. This is about specific sins, Right? And so confession becomes a part of the paradigm. Now we'll come back to that, but there is one other place where we need to broaden out the boundaries of how we think about sin. Did you notice how strange the list of reasons to bring the sacrifice is? The three that it gives is, if you're called to court as a witness and you don't tell what actually happened, if you've touched a dead body and didn't know it and you find out later, and then lastly, if you make a rash vow for good or evil. Why? Why those three examples? First off, recognize here that like all of the Old Testament law, it is apodictic in nature, which is just a word that, that uh, legal language uses to say that it's exemplary. Right? When it says don't muzzle an ox when you're treading your grain, that doesn't mean, oh, sweet, well, I'm going to use a donkey because that's legal. Right? It's giving an example of a deeper principle. And so these three are chosen for a reason, but they're not the complete list. They're not the only reasons to bring this. What do we find out when we look at these three? There's three things that we find out that are super surprising. Okay, what do we see in the first one? The idea here that it presents is that a crime has happened, you're called as a witness, and you fail to testify. 
recognize first and foremost, this is not an action, but an inaction. And it says, you're guilty. You see, another place where we get it wrong as moderns is we are so individualistic. We don't see our responsibility for other people. Now there's, this is not a consistent principle. There's other places where we're really getting this. And even this idea of speaking up when injustice is being done, we're seeing happening play out in our nation right now all the time. But the principle here plays out when you see sexual harassment at work. Right? It, it plays out in spotlight for not just the priesthood, but all of the people of Boston who knew these things and were unwilling to look the truth in the eye. For every mother who, for the sake of the church or whatever, just settled out of court and kept things quiet. There is this reality of responsibility that means if you see something, say something. It was said maybe a century ago, ago that all it takes for evil to succeed is for good men to do nothing. That's a much older principle than just a century ago. And so first we, we see what, the bio, what we would sometimes call sins of omission not doing the right thing when you should do the right thing. But what's the next one? Once again, it goes into purity laws. And the idea here is not just that you're impure and you need to offer the sacrifice, but you don't know you're impure and then you find it out. Why? Because you're a walking uh, dirty bomb, right? You're exposing people to high-level impurity ra uh, radiation, if you will, and it doesn't matter that you didn't know. So what, what we're talking about here is sins of carelessness. See, one of the ways that we deal with our guilt all the time is we explain it away as an accident. And I just want to tell you tonight, that doesn't work. With low-grade sins, you might be able to get away with that for a while. But I have a friend who, um, when we were in high school, was in an elementary parking lot and backed out his car without looking and killed a child. And it almost destroyed him. And you could say up one side and down the other, it was just an accident. It wasn't going to bring that kid back to life. It recognizes here that carelessness in and of itself is sinfulness. When the Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself, one of the things that that implies is awareness and attention, not just to what you're doing, but what's going on around you, right? Being concerned about the ritual purity state of other people being aware, and, and the reality is, even if you were unaware, and even if you feel like you had every reason to be unaware, like, it seems to me that this law would imply if you were exposed to a dead body because you fell in a bush, and you didn't even know there was a body there until the next day it was discovered, and you're like, oh man, I was in that bush yesterday, I was probably, it still applies, okay? But remember, this is, this is about something deeper. It's a purity law, it's about the heart. It's this recognition that, that carelessness has consequences. Then the last one we see on the list is what's labeled here as a rash vow. Okay. Just take New Year's resolutions. I think we would recognize that a large portion of New Year's resolutions are rash vows, right? They sound great December 25th when you're all bloated and inspired by this phenomenon of the calendar turning over. But come March, you have all these reasons why you're not moving forward. If you're a Christian, you've probably experienced this directly in relationship with God, and maybe not just for your New Year's resolutions, but you come to these points where you go, okay, I've had enough, God, I'm going to 
you know, read my Bible every morning. I'm going to spend this time in prayer. I'm going to start to talk to this friend about Jesus. I'm going to, and you lay out this list of things. The recognition here is that not always do you fulfill those vows. And the idea of a rash vow is you probably shouldn't have made it in the first place. Okay, another thing that this makes me think of is presidential candidates come year two, right? What's the question we all ask? Have they kept their promises? And well, it's the economy and all these things. The recognition, once again, is that words mean something. The scariest thing to me about the stock market is how our entire economy can hinge, not just on feelings, but the spoken words of people we're listening to, right? And so some guy says, yeah, I'm not really into cheeseburgers, and okay? Words have consequences, and like we know with presidential candidates, they can't be taken back and remove the damage, can they? Any more than you can put toothpaste back in the toothpaste tube. So we've got this broad reality, and the sacrifice pro promises cleansing and forgiveness, but it involves confession, not excuses. All right? And you can't say, well, I didn't mean to. And, and this is, by the way, not because God's unwilling to let you off the hook, more because the guilt is there, whether you like it or not. Now, the other thing that's unique about this sacrifice um, is, is that this confession happens, and here's how we usually think about priests. Maybe because of the influence of Catholicism, we think of it as the one receiving the confession, but if you pay attention here, the, pre uh, the priest is an audience, but he's not the one you're speaking to. Over and over for this sacrifice, it says, before the Lord, before the Lord. The confession is made unto the Lord. The priest just happens to be present. Okay. Now, that's an important reality that we'll get to in just a second. But the idea of confession just means to agree with God, to label sin, sin. It, it, put it together. Imagine that you're a person, and you've sinned as an Israelite, and it's the first time you've ever taken in a sin offering. And you lay your hand on this innocent animal that you've probably raised, and you state the sin, and you slit the throat. Do you feel the recognition of that? Even, you know, in an out-of-body sense, just going through the motions, walking through the pattern? But confession is scary, is it not? Right? Like I said, one of the things we do with our guilt is we hide it because it's a way that we manage damage. It's a way that we manage consequence. What if I lose my job? What if I lose my spouse? What if I lose all of the respect that I've built up? What if it derails all of these things? If you have not read Hugo's Les Mis, Les Miserables, the musical is great, the movies are fine, the book is something else. But there's an occasion where this converted man, Jean Valjean, who was a thief, and has now changed his life and is doing all of these good things, discovers that a man is going to trial and is going to be put to death because they believe that he is Jean Valjean. And he goes through this mental anguish where he's like, I have two choices here. I can go to court or I can continue to do all these good things. And he says, but surely all of these good things outweigh the bad and he hires a carriage. And as he's riding through the carriage, He's thinking, and he's thinking, but it's, it's one man versus the many. Surely, and the carriage 
breaks a wheel and he gets out and he goes oh maybe this is God getting me out and so he hires another horse and he keeps having this argument and it pushes him and it pushes him and he's making all of these reasons and his hand is on the handle of the court case while it's in session and he steps into the room and he says that man is innocent and I know this to be the case because I am Jean Valjean it's one of my favorite parts of the book it's this reality of confession right it's this recognition that all of the excuses, all of the hiding aside, I am the criminal. I am the sinner. I committed the crime. I am guilty. Martin Luther has this tremendous passage where he says, God doesn't save fake sinners. He only saves real ones. So sin boldly and experience God's grace more boldly. And he's not there just saying, live like hell because forgiveness is available. He's saying just the opposite. He's saying, own up to who you really are because that's who God's in the business of saving. That's what confession does. It brings us into the light and then you discover the blood cleanses it. This is not just the Old Testament. Okay. Turn to 1 John. In the passage we're going to look at in 1 John, I want you to notice that John uses the same metaphors of the sin offering. It's clearly on his mind. Listen to what he says. This is 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you hear what he's saying? First, he says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And if you say that you're walking in the light with God, but you're actually in darkness, then you lie. The idea here is not lightness as, light as righteousness and darkness as sin. And he's not saying if you say or if you continue in sin, you have nothing to do with God. No, he's saying if you keep your sins hidden, right? If you keep them in the darkness, if you don't expose them to the light, then you don't actually have a relationship with God. And I want to be very clear tonight. What guilt does in your relationship with God as a Christian is not, go, is not put God at the original state again where suddenly your entire life's at risk, where God has nothing to do with you, but it does, on your end, hinder your relationship with God. And once again, it's not hard to prove. If you are hiding and nursing some sort of sin, just look at your prayer life. Is there any faith there? Is there any hope there? Is there any intimacy there? Even Dan Savage, the sex columnist for The Stranger, who his relationship advice would be the exact opposite of mine on almost every occasion. He recognizes that it's the secrecy, even in adultery, that's the most damaging. Okay, and what it says here is not, you need to be light, it's bring it into the light, and what does he say? If you walk in the light, the blood of Jesus will cleanse you of that sin, right? And so if your idea is walking in the light means not sinning, then you're missing the whole point of the passage. What he's saying is, look, be honest, fess up. What he's saying is, yes, you're dirty, but we have an app for that. We have a way of dealing with that. 
But confession is scary for a lot of reasons, and they're ones that you have to deal with honestly. Sometimes confession is scary because we don't want to give up what we're doing. Sometimes it's scary uh, because we don't want to label ourselves in that way. We don't want to see ourselves in that light, right? And, and so, so in one, it's because you're quite happy, thank you, and you'll continue on your way. In another, it's a form of hiding. But hiding from God doesn't work, just to be clear, okay? It, uh, J.C. Ryle once said that hypocrisy... This idea of pretending to be something on the outside when you're something different in the inside. Hypocrisy is not just a great sin, says Ryle. It's also a great foolishness, right? It's just as smart as the hide-and-seek game we see in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve hear God coming and go, quick, in the bushes. He'll never find us, right? But once again, the confession here is to God, not, not to a mediator, not to a priest, but bringing it into the light. But I do want to point out to you that twice in the New Testament, it extends this metaphor in social ways. For example, Jesus says, intriguingly enough, if you bring your offering to the altar, right? He takes the same sacrificial imagery. He's speaking to a Jewish crowd. If you bring it to the altar and remember that somebody has something against you, go to them, confess your sin, and ask for forgiveness. Okay? So one place where you should definitely make a habit of confession as well as asking for forgiveness is when your sin has consequences for other people, when you've sinned against them. Second, James, unfortunately, gives no caveats, gives no specifics. He just says, confess your sins to one another. And once again, he doesn't say confess your sins to the priest or to the pastor, but to one another. The one another's are the major bread and butter of what it looks like to live a Christian life in community, and that includes apparently confessing sin. And the reality is twofold. One, sometimes, sometimes confession with God runs this way. I know I should confess, so I'm going to talk to you about it, but I'm planning on continuing in it. And confessing it to other people removes the viability of this hiddenness. Here's a weird parallel. A lot of times when people go to a counselor, they find immediate relief. Why? Because they're being their real self. All of their secrets, the things that have been done to them, the things that they've done, all come spilling out. And then the relief goes away. Why? Because it's just a pond. It's not a river, right? They're not, they're not an honest self. They have no integrity. They just had an outlet for a while, but that outlet is contained. And it, this is just a theory of mine. Uh, this is not thus saith the Lord, it's, it's just the way I think about this, but there is this reality with God too, where God can become kind of a cathartic counselor that you tell about all of your things, but you really don't want to actually deal with the issues. And so sometimes confessing to another person is a way to get the ball rolling on that, but there's another and I would say a more important reason, okay? It's because when you confess your sins, the person can look you in the eye and say, the blood of Jesus was spilled for that sin, you are forgiven. There's a part of the sacrifice we didn't mention. It's the most unique aspect, right? Blood being spilled isn't that unique. It's only taken into the tabernacle for certain people, but the sacrifice is usually spilt at the altar. That's not unique. Fat being burned on the altar isn't unique, but what it says at the end is then the entire carcass, skin and everything, is taken out of the tabernacle, out of the camp, or out of the temple, out of the city of Jerusalem, and burned outside the city in its entirety. Okay. Here's what happens a lot of times when we deal with sin in the Christian life, when we try and deal with our guilt rightly. What happens is we slay the animal. 
we spill the blood. We recognize, you know, that, that Jesus died for this, and then we pick up the corpse, and we wrap it around us, and we carry it with us. It becomes defining for us. And sometimes that's a way to try and get God to pour out grace on us because we go, look, look how sorrowful I am. Look how repentant I am. Look how sad and mopey I'm being. Doesn't this then deserve your forgiveness? No, we already have it. Other times it's just because we still cannot believe that we're that bad of a sinner, right? We can't shake the reality. But what, what the Israelites had to do is they had to recognize that the sin that was confessed and died for was carried outside the camp and then it was burned away and it was gone. And I want to be very clear here. Forgiveness is not forgotten. Even when it talks about God forgetting our sins, that's a metaphor, okay? Not like God's got some sort of a, a hardware erase program, right? But it's true in your relationships. Isn't that one of the challenges of forgiving other people? Does this mean I just pretend it never happened and put myself at risk? No, it doesn't. Forgiveness is what you do when you remember it again. Forgiveness is what happens when it's remembered, okay? And the reality is, if you haven't had this scenario that the sacrifice takes of, of the carcass being dealt with for all, what happens when you remember it again is the guilt comes back. Or what happens when you remember it again is you start to hide it again. Or what happens is, right, you just begin the cycle again. Now, the author of Hebrews is really helpful here because he points out that this is the reason Jesus died not in the city of Jerusalem, but outside its gates. Right? Not in the holy place, but in this vile place of oppression and power and death and shame and nudity and blood and scourging and spitting and mocking from the crowds outside the city. And what the Bible says is what Jesus did there is not just make a gesture of love so God could say, you know what, I know you've got problems, but just to prove how much I love you. No. He bore the full consequence, the full penalty of your sin. Just like that car uh, carcass being burned entirely through, Jesus there experienced the full totality of punishment and death and hell itself on your behalf. Jesus talks in the Garden of Gethsemane about the cup, right? Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. The cup that's talked about throughout scriptures is the cup of God's wrath. What I'm telling you tonight is that according to what we read in Leviticus, according to what the New Testament tells us, even what John is saying, is that Jesus took that entire cup and he drank it to the dregs. There's nothing left for you. Okay? That's why, and this is my favorite part, that's why he says if we confess our sins in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. Not merciful. Right? That's what you would expect. What, what we want from God, and this is right and accurate, is mercy. But he says, no, as a Christian, when you confess your sins, what you get is God's justice. Okay? There's no double indemnity. Right? There's no double jeopardy. You can't be tried for the crime again. It's been fully and completely paid for. I greatly appreciate, I greatly appreciate how AA and other organizations have helped us to understand the fact that temptation is not something that just goes away or that's something that's overcome, right? Once an addict, always an addict has a level of truth in it that's very appropriate. And sometimes we as Christians think that the right Christian life, if we're doing it right or if we've been at it long enough, means that we're impervious to temptation like Superman to bullets. And that's just not accurate. It's not accurate at all. But 
there's a danger when you say that and you say, yes, I'm an addict or I'm an alcoholic and these things, and it becomes your identity. Okay. When Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, he's not just pointing to the fact that Jesus is now steering the bus. He's recognizing the fact that his value and who he is, and most importantly, who he will be, is all bound up in the decisions and obedience and righteousness of another person. We were studying in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 before we got into Leviticus, and Paul lists a group of people. He says, don't be deceived. Because of these people, the wrath of God is coming on the world, and he lists them, and they're all identities, the idolater and the drunkard. And he lists some sexual sins, and he goes down the list. And this is what he says to the church. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. Why don't we have to keep the purity code anymore? In fact, the next time somebody challenges you on cherry-picking in the Bible and saying these things are wrong and saying these things are now okay, say, no, 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 this is a gospel issue for me. This is the bread and butter. It's the center. It's the heartbeat of of what it's saying because basically what Jesus did for us cleansed us in such a deep and full way, got really to the heart of the issue, those other things are no longer necessary. Paul says this about the law. He says, why do you need a tutor when you're all grown up? Why do you settle for the shadow when you now have the reality? Right? There is a fountain called the Holy Spirit that exists in you that is constantly cleansing. I'll finish here in the mouth of Jesus himself. There's an occasion right before Jesus dies at the Last Supper where he gets up from the table, he girds himself in a towel, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. And the real message of the passage comes in Jesus' words when he says, just as I, your master, have done to you, so also do to one another. But in the middle of it, there's this little aside conversation that happens between him and the Apostle Peter. He comes to Peter, he sits the bucket down, he kneels down, and Peter goes, no way, Lord. If anything, I should wash your feet. I will not let you. And he says, if you are not clean, you have no part with, part with me. And Peter says, well, then wash my face and wash my hands. Wash all of me, Lord. And he says, he who is bathed no longer needs to wash his whole self, but just his feet. Okay. That's the two realities that we're talking about tonight. In Jesus Christ, you have been cleansed, bath. You still need cleansing, washed feet. Okay. You have been forgiven, and that's permanent. You are justified, it says in the book of Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation, but you still need to go through that transaction of forgiveness. Okay. The difference is, you don't have to kill another thing. You confess your sins, and you point to the sacrifice that those sacrifices pointed to, and you recognize that it was complete and it was sufficient. And yes, it may be true that the blood of goats and bulls could never deal with sin and bring forgiveness, but the death of God's only son in your place on the cross did. So as we transition into worship tonight, communion is set out, and you don't have to make confession a habit before communion. You don't have to make sure everything's dealt with so that it doesn't turn to rot in your mouth or poison you or whatever. But there is a reason that it's appropriate, especially tonight, to go through this process again of confession. It's because this right here is intimacy in its deepest form. Greater love has no man for this than one should die for another. And if there's sin that's keeping guilt you know, that you're shoving in the margin between you 
and your father, when you come to this table, it will just be going through the motions. You won't actually take and eat. You won't actually drink and remember and rejoice. And so before you do tonight, take some time. And whether it's something that's just come to your attention or you've continued to mull over and you recognize that this rotting corpse is just wrapped on your shoulders, confess those sins. Confess that Jesus died for those sins. Confess that Jesus paid the full penalty and that there's no more wrath for you. Let that corpse burn outside the city and then enter back into a relationship with the God who loved you so much he made all of that possible. Let's pray. Father, we, we get tied up and we think that guilt is something that you put on us. And yet we've found tonight that it's something that you desire to remove from us. That we put it on it with our behavior. Uh, and that there's this uncleanness in us that, that even leads to behavior beyond our own wants and desires. There's this ensnarement to something deeper. There's this pollution upstream. And it doesn't matter how many times we clean the river, it dirties again. And we recognize that even that we can't do. And I thank you so much. The message of the Bible and the message of Christianity and the message of the gospel is not, yes, if you clean yourself up, God wants something to do with you. God wants to be a part of your life. But instead, God wanted so much that when we were dirty, when we were far, when we were distant, when we were rebellion, then God did something about it. You're the one who opened the river. You're the one who invites us to be cleansed. You're the one who provided the sacrifice. You're the one who is more than willing to forgive if only we will confess and be forgiven. I pray that you'd help us anew, afresh, to just get in the habit of confession, to recognize that what may seem awkward or foreign or embarrassing or these things is a lot less so when we've been been habitually experiencing the forgiveness of God. And I thank you, Lord, that you desire to walk with us in the light, and you're not afraid of what you might find when we bring our darkness into the light, and that you have something for that, that you've already taken care of it in Jesus Christ. I pray that we would experience forgiveness, and that we would experience cleansing tonight. In Jesus' name.